Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a new music and mental health podcast. In the background, you can hear singing from Marianne Riskala, the Vice Chair of the British Association for Music Therapy. This was recorded pre-Christmas, pre-coronavirus, in a local carol concert that she invited me to at a church where she was recently hired as a cantor. In addition, she's also a core tutor at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, where she trained initially as a music therapist. In this episode, I speak to Marianne about music therapy and all the work that she does in that area, especially with refugees, victims of war conflict, domestic violence and trauma. We speak about her private work also as the director for North London Music Therapy, where she explains to me how music therapy works for people with autism. She gives me a music therapy session herself to exemplify how exactly it works and I visit her in her various different spaces. Her work is really varied. On top of music therapy, she works as a singing teacher, a chorister and a choir member. It wasn't actually until we met that I discovered that she's a member of the Crouch End Festival Chorus. Those of you who know me well will appreciate how much this interested me because it's the choir that recorded on Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds eponymous album and who went on to tour with him throughout the UK in 2012 and 2015. Marianne talks me through that experience going on tour with Noel, which leads us into a discussion about the power and transcendental nature of music and how this affects us. It's a long interview separated into two sections. It was all recorded before Christmas, which is why I was able to visit her in her various spaces. We had a lot of fun recording in the process and I really hope that you'll have fun hearing it too. I want to make sure I've got all your titles correct. I'm, I'm the Vice Chair of the British Association for Music Therapy, which can be shortened to BAMT. BAMT is the central body for music therapy in this country. It formed in 2011, there were two other organisations that merged. Mm. BAMT's remit is to promote music therapy in the UK. Mm. They call it promoting the art and science of music therapy. Mm. I am helping think about how best we run ourselves. Music therapist is a registered protected title with the Health and Care Professions Council. So you can't use that unless you've completed one of the MAs and you're registered with the HCPC. There wasn't a voice for somebody who just started, people who were early in their career, who need a different type of support to people who were further along in their careers. And I thought that I could think about how that might look. Your Guildhall stuff? Um, I have a couple of roles. So okay. my official title is that I'm the Music Therapy Outreach and Enterprise Tutor. Okay. 
which means in practice that I do some clinical work as part of the outreach team. Um, I do some lecturing and also I do some, it's not dissimilar to PR, but it's a slightly more focused, but it's stuff that promotes the work of the music therapy department. So this room is really nice. Is that you, you would do your sessions in this? So in this building, um, what I do is I, uh, I run some lectures sometimes with the students and I run short courses. I run the short course uh, for the Guildhall, which is like an introduction to music therapy for the general public. And what we do is we use one of the rooms upstairs to do lectures in and then we break out into a room like this to do workshops. So a lot of creative stuff happens in here. And it's, uh, I get a bunch, I assemble a bunch of people to come and teach on that course. So there's all sorts of things happening. So some people will run uh, just playing workshops and things with, uh, things that might be considered music therapy techniques um, and the sort of thing you might do in a session. Another person just runs a straight improv session and gets people thinking about how you might use your instrument in different ways compared to what you're used to. Mm. I run a vocal workshop, which is partly kind of encouraging people to improvise. And then we do some teaching upstairs and we show case studies and we talk a little bit about the theory and it's quite, it's quite wide-ranging. Yeah. Famous people that came to here, I mean, there must be, right? Loads and loads and loads. So the famous, the mo the famous recent actors are people like Ewan McGregor, and Damien Lewis and Lily James, who was in Downton Abbey and Cinderella and stuff. Musicians, Tasman Little, who plays the violin. I have a feeling Jacqueline Dupre came here, who played the cello. She's in the 60s. Um, there's loads and loads of famous orchestral musicians whose names, I've, of course, I can't remember. I think maybe Thomas Adeus came here, who's the composer. Okay. Um, and there's some conductors. Of course, my brain's gone blank. The, the actors are the ones that everyone remembers because they're the really, really starry ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's lots, of, there's lots of players in orchestras and stuff at the moment who are big, who are big names in that kind of world who are, who've come here. Mm, okay. <laughs> it is classical, isn't it? That yeah. They do? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. They do a lot of jazz here as well. Okay. Was there anything practical-wise that you would do in here that I could be like a guinea pig for? Well, we could play something. Let's play something. Yeah. We could play the piano together. So I don't know. I don't know how we want to do this. Uh, it can just be here on the piano, I guess, if we, if we want it. Yeah. What usually happens with me is that I just say, oh, well, we have lots of instruments available for you to use. And... I usually say this in the meeting beforehand, but I usually say that I will wait for you. Okay. And um, I'll be listening to what you're doing, um, but I'll be waiting for you, and then um, I'll respond and we'll talk together through using music. Mm. Okay. What would you do with that? It's most interesting to me to hear your experience. I noticed anxiety at the start. It's been a long time since I've sat at a piano and played it. But it's like I've got the energy to do like something with my with my hand. Yeah. But there was like an anxiety that the sound that I was imagining I was gonna hear wasn't gonna be the sound that I was gonna hear. So I was sort of pleasantly surprised when I started hitting keys and they sounded relatively <laughs> it's like, oh, phew, it, yeah. sounds, it doesn't sound terrible. And then I remembered some scales, 
and I think what I noticed is that I was quite cautious at the beginning and quite cordy and then I gradually let go a little bit and as I let go I kind of freed up my fingers just to play individual notes. trust it a bit more and think well it doesn't really matter and then when you were joining in I was feeling like there was a sort of trust there it was like whatever I do it's okay because I'll know that you will you will somehow accommodate for that so that that freed me up a bit to just be a bit bolder, take a bit of a risk and not worry if it's if there is a bum note or session? Depends if it comes to a natural end like it did just then. Mm. Sometimes it can just keep going, sometimes it'll stop and sometimes afterwards someone will just go, oh right I want to play this thing now and then we'll just go on and sometimes they'll talk about it. 
or sometimes there'll be a pause where someone doesn't quite know what they're going to do and so I say, um, tell me what just happened. Mm, okay. Then in response to that, I think um, I would, I'll tell you what I would be thinking about internally okay. and then afterwards I'll tell you what I would actually say to you. Okay. So um, internally I'm, I'm totally on board and agreeing with everything you're saying because I felt like it was very uh, it was very polite at the beginning mm. and that we were we were being diatonic and we were in mm. a major key and in fact I think we started on I think we started on C and it was all kind of very kind of pleasant and cordy as yeah. you say and it was all so very nice and our, and our hands were kind of moving in a genteel way and I thought well you know let's just ease into this gently it'll be all right and then and then you played a black note and I thought all right okay <laughs> taking some risks here um which was pretty cool and so i thought let's reciprocate with that um i wanted i felt like i wanted to offer you quite a high level of uh, maybe actually no support was the word i thought of and i wanted to show you that i was there and that i was listening to what you were doing and then yeah it did become more chromatic and um i, I really enjoyed listening to the runs that you were doing going up and down the piano and so i thought i'd play some too yeah. Um, which which was kind of fun and, and felt nice. And I experienced the freeing that you were talking about as well. Mm. And that felt that felt quite enjoyable and it felt like it could go lots of places. Mm. And I, th I think I'm used to longer pieces and so I felt your need for an ending. Mm. And I think I missed it the first time. Um, and so we and then I kind of initiated something new and then I kind of realized afterwards Oh, I think I think Katie was trying to end there and then you did again with that and I thought right that's the end of Okay, we'll do that then. That's good <laughs> That's really interesting how you Sort of intuit into where the person's at with wanting to end. Mm. That's quite interesting mm. yeah. uh, The reason I ask people who are verbal and, and who I think feel are uh, in the mood to do this if I ask people to tell me what happened, first of all, I can check if my if my guesses are anywhere near the mark. Mm. Um, and then secondly, uh, usually some other interesting stuff comes out. And in this case, um, it was what you were saying about feeling anxious, and especially about the bum notes. Mm. And I just wondered which ones were the bum notes. I think it might have been when I came out of the chord and started hitting these notes. Mm. There, were, there was the odd moment, I think, where it just didn't quite sound right, I can't remember what it might have been that note that I hit mm. after having played a sort of major sort of sounding scale and mm. then I did something like that and um, it didn't quite go with along with that, I can't quite remember which mm. one it was but yeah the, the note that I played didn't quite go with the one before. So if I was being your therapist I would I would probably interpret something at this point and kind of say something a bit more personal but because it's for the podcast I'm going to say something more general which is um, that I think this is a common experience that a lot of people find. So if, you're, if, if pe people with some ability to play the piano will start off diatonically because that's what you're meant to do. You're meant to start with chords and it's meant to sound nice. But then that sets up a situation for yourself where it doesn't sound nice. And the only reason it's a bum note is because uh, a decision was made initially to start off diatonically when that was never set down as a rule. That was not. That wasn't a prerequisite of being able to play. And had we just played atonally from the start, there wouldn't have been any bum notes, and it would have been all right. So, something I end up thinking about a lot with um, how much permission we can give ourselves to play, and how free we can be, and you know how much time it takes us to loosen up and to be able to do something. Because it's interesting that you, when you said you felt freer, mm. it was more chromatic. Mm. 
And I'm not saying that diatonic is bad or anything like that, but but being diatonic does come with restrictions um, that we don't necessarily have to think about when we're playing. But because uh, we're taught that piano playing or whatever instrument has to sound nice or good or has to sit into a kind of... If it doesn't sit with that, then it's wrong. Then you've done something wrong. It's difficult for people to let go sufficiently that actually might just be acceptable in itself and might yeah. be a communication of some description. Yeah, yeah. What would be the personal thing that you would tell me? I mean, I can... I'm just morbidly curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I wouldn't say all of this initially because I'd want to spend a bit more time kind of hearing what you have to say. Okay. But I suspect the, the need to be correct is linked to the anxiety and is linked to mm. uh, needing approval in some mm. form from some place. Yeah, yeah, that fits. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't necessarily offer that too soon to a client, like that sort of um, idea. Um, the best paper I've ever read is by a psychoanalyst called Ronald Britton and it's called The Missing Link. And that really cemented and crystallized the separation relationships thing for me. And he links this to making interpretations during sessions um, because a patient of his uh, just couldn't manage it. And um, when he would say something that he meant as an interpretation, she couldn't deal with the relationship that he had with his own thoughts and his own mind. And so she, and so she said, stop that fucking thinking. Like, mm -hmm. that's the big famous quote from that paper. Okay. And so his thing is that um, you can know all of this stuff in your mind but there is no point in expressing it until the patient is ready to hear it. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. And he gives technical reasons as to why that is, and it's to do with separation relationships and stuff, but um, he said just, just hold it back until the patient can hear it. You should be aware enough as a therapist to be okay with the relationship that you have with your own mind and that that's different to what's going on out there. Mm. You should be in that headspace when you're a therapist and when you're being a therapist and um, if your patient needs something that's validating and is much closer to a kind of dualistic relationship then that's fine give them the validating thing keep them in the room mm. you know say something that's going to make them feel heard and understood mm. only offer them something challenging at, the po at a point when they're ready to be challenged mm -hmm. wonderful yeah and i can see how that works here mm. Because actually, I think I think that is linked because it influences how I play. Because it's the first time we play together, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to play a bit more, and I'm going to play in a way that is very close to what you're playing because um, it's useful for us to feel like we're in a conversation very early on. Um, and then um, when if we were more used to playing together, then there would be more space for you to express yourself without needing without needing somebody else to be there. Or there would be more space for me to um, play something that was a bit further away from what you were playing. My youngest brother has autism and when I was a teenager he had what we thought at the time was music therapy um, but with hindsight it was probably sound therapy. But it was really interesting. Before he had this course of sound therapy he would have tantrums but really, really bad ones where he would pull clumps of hair out and it was really distressing, it was really difficult to listen to. Um, and also just things like his brain processes were, he wasn't sure if it was right-handed or left-handed, his coordination was a little bit off. 
He was given a pair of expensive headphones and was played a particular series of binaural beats. So the beats are, the frequency is very, very fast and they wave at different frequencies in his ears. And apparently the headphones were sensitive enough that it could be directed, it could be panned very, very, very specifically. I don't know any more of the science behind it, but afterwards he stopped having tantrums and his coordination was sorted out and he became, uh, in his case, he's right-handed. It sorted it all out after that course. And I was kind of amazed at this thing that I was really interested in actually has properties that could do something like that. And then I found music therapy in a careers book and I didn't quite understand what it was because it, it didn't sound quite like what my little brother had. But it said, oh, you can work with all sorts of people, you can work with people that really need help, you can make a difference in people's lives, and actually you could have a stab at a salary. Because what I really wanted to do more than anything else was to be a composer. And I was okay, I, got, I was quite self-conscious, but I never took it anywhere because I just couldn't face the reality of living as a composer and actually living from paycheck to paycheck and it being very, very difficult to get a rung of the ladder, if you like. I didn't go to music college to do my undergrad, I just went to university. And I majored in composition and I wrote some interesting stuff there. And I didn't really know what I was doing after uni. I knew that I enjoyed playing and I knew that I enjoyed composing and I knew that I had to have music in my everyday. Because immediately after uni I was just working on the telephones for a bank. I was doing their online help desk. And I had the same view every day and I couldn't bear it. And it was awful, I just couldn't, you know, and it was the whole time blue breaks and that sort of environment and I just didn't like it. And so I decided I wanted an adventure and I liked the idea of music therapy but I had no idea if my skills were good enough. And I didn't know what instruments go on or anything like that. I'd never really taken singing seriously up till that point, it was just a thing I did in choir because I enjoyed it. But my other instrument was flute and flute I felt a bit self-conscious on and I thought actually why don't I just try singing and see what that's like. So I just, it was all a bit exploratory and I was starting to research music therapy and I went on some open days because there's only, there's only a handful of master's courses in the UK that are accredited and that will mean that you're allowed to call yourself a music therapist afterwards. So I had to do, I had to choose from a handful of these masters. And so I was researching stuff and the two that really stuck out for me were Nordoff Robbins and the Guildhall. But the more I researched it, because the theories are quite different and the style of course was different, and the more I was attracted to the Guildhall, and I thought, I'm not going. They won't take me there on my piano skills. That's not going to happen. And my flute was grade seven, and they wanted a diploma level something. So I thought, well, I don't know how good I am as a singer. So I took singing lessons, and I said, well, could I do a diploma thing? And she went, well, it's worth a shot. I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into, to be honest. If I'd have thought about it too much, I'd have kind of panicked my way. I'd have talked myself out of doing it. So I went down to London and I did the audition and the buildings were really tall and I got really intimidated. But then, you know, I, I started on this big adventure and I went to London and I moved in with um, my husband for the first time. And we lived in this tiny little box in Holloway and we had a great time. And I went to music college and I played my flute and I sang and I played piano every day. I didn't really get it until I started training. And when I finished training, I then thought again I didn't really get it and I had a lot more to learn. 
I've done further training at the Tavistock since. I did a foundation course in psychodynamic psychotherapy because my theory knowledge was pretty good and we've been trained pretty well. Um, but just for me, I just knew I had some gaps that I would not have filled in myself if I'd have just sat down and read some books. I needed people to explain them to me. I, I'm into philosophy. I did philosophy at A-level and it's... And it's not just the reading, it's the thinking around it and the talking about it with people. It's the feeling that my mind is really going. That's what I enjoy the most when I'm being a therapist as well, is that when it's really clicking and both of our minds are really on it and we're making connections together, it's, it's that kind of ideal time that you don't always get to. But when it works, and either through playing or through talking about what we've just played or just through talking on its own, you know, there's no, there's no one medium that's better than another. It depends on the person. But when everyone is connected and when our brains are working together and when we're really finding out about somebody in a way that makes sense to them and is meaningful, it's the same as reading a text because it's like something else is being discovered. It's like another little neural pathway has been fused. It's like something has been connected in my mind, and it's like there's just a fuller picture of something. Yeah. I just love that feeling so much. Incredible. Um, would it be interesting to um, try and play something where we're really not with each yeah, other? Yeah. And just see what that feels like? Yeah. <laughs> so again, I'll wait for you to begin. Okay. There was a bit of um I thought, oh, okay, well she's not she's not on board with me. So fuck it, I won't be on board with her. <laughs> my own thing. I tried, you would change it. Then I'd go back to, oh fuck it then, I'll just do my own thing. I noticed you were trying to, you were trying to do what I was doing, I was like, nah! <laughs> That was really fun. <laughs> that was really fun. It's interesting as well that that can be fun. 
it's raised a new awareness that it's freeing me up to then say okay I'll just do my own thing mm. and not worry and not feel like I need you to do something and actually every time I then tried to do what you were doing that didn't work in my favour it was mm. like no just keep doing what I want to do and mm. she'll do what she wants to do we'll both just keep doing what, I, what we want to do mm. and it might sound totally disruptive or whatever but actually we were both enjoying ourselves yeah, <laughs> yeah we're having a nice time yeah <laughs> so that's quite a, an interesting thing to think about but i mean you know we've been quite simplistic about this is when it works and this is when it doesn't yeah. but of course this kind of flits from moment to moment and um it's my job when i'm in the room to try and work out where somebody is in any one given moment, mm. um, which is different each time, and you know how much to how much to step back and observe, and how much to intervene. Because I suppose I suppose we could say that each act of the therapist playing is, is sort of making an intervention as well. And is is this what you want from me at this particular time? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Thinking about what you said about coming to Holloway on this adventure, doing this course, and you've kind of develop this like vivid picture of that lifestyle this kind of almost like a secret year the music therapy la was two years and that was full time at least in the first year it did feel a bit like i was taking a trip out of everyday life yeah it feels like when therapy is really working um it's it's not a job it's not um it's not mundane yeah. i don't think i could live in a way where i would just turn up somewhere yeah. um and just do something for eight hours and then go home. I can't do that. It's not interesting enough. I'm the thing that really gets me going is is being with somebody or with a group of people who are just prepared to think about what's going on in a full in as full a way as possible. And so sometimes people talk about politics and sometimes people talk about something very, very disparate or they talk about a dream they've had or something that they saw on the telly, but it's always something about them and something that's linked to who they are and I think because my upbringing is so particular you know I've, I've had these very very big experiences of being brought up with a particular ideology and being brought up with a particular background of war and of a lifestyle that's so different to mine. So we're crossing the road now so this, so this is the um it's the women's this is a music therapy group I run with one of the man gardens women's groups. Okay. Anymore. Oh yeah, sorry, careful, as I said. It does feel quite cool sitting in this building. Cool, so this would be... Is this the same room you're always in? Yes. Yeah. So we have this group every week in this room. Okay. So we referred to this service because of their status. So they're refugees and either because they're fleeing from war or because they're in traffic here for sexual means and uses, but lots of women have been supported with housing and they're being supported with kind of well-being groups and that sort of thing. It's kind of like a dropping group, so we don't know who's going to turn up each week. And we have instruments out and people are just able to kind of turn up and improvise or sing and play kind of however they, they want. These are our instruments. Oh, 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 wow, we've got drums. We've got drums. This is 
sound like the waves of the ocean. because it's such a delicate sound. Oh, lovely. Oh, it's, it's almost like a... I was thinking of a harp. I can see it. I think of best. So then there's this kind of interesting tension between actually needing quite a lot of support from me, but then being inclined to take instruction anyway. And that can sometimes feel quite uncomfortable for me because I don't need all of the control and all the power. And sometimes it can feel like I've uh, gained that by proxy. So I have to be quite careful. And sometimes I will just take a step back and just make sure that the women are playing in a way that they're happy with. Mm. What I would intend to do would be to support what's already been played because maybe um, the instruments feel quite exciting um, but it doesn't feel like a coherent piece of music which is sometimes tolerable but not often in this group in this setting so it's useful for me to pick up one of the drums and to create quite a simple rhythm because then you have a more coherent piece of music okay. that it's easier to play along with yeah. but I, I also when I'm doing that I want to be quite conscious that I don't want to impose my own beats and my own culture on women who are from very different cultures. I come from a position where I'm more inclined to feel confident to play these. Mm -hmm. um, so that can, it's a bit like being a church musician. I get given a sense of uh, genius or a sense of that I, at least that I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. When I don't any more than than the rest of the group do because I don't know what's going to be played mm. and I don't know what will be appropriate in any given setting. Like this one, it's, it's an African instrument so you can either tap it or it makes these different sounds or you can do this. Sometimes, sometimes they're more straightforward than others so the drums you can just hit them with your hand and the maracas you can just pick them up and shake them but the claves it, it, it can sometimes feel a bit like what it's just two sticks that you hit together. It's like yes, but they're a particularly resonant pair of sticks. Mm. And what do you find is the outcome after a session? I think I'd hoped initially um, that we would have a core membership of the group and that they would be able to connect and that the music would be able to help illuminate things for them. What's happened in practice is that just by nature of the service that's being run here. Each woman's life is very different each week, they have very different appointments, so we only have one regular attender at the moment. And so we've, I've just had to scale back actually what's, what's needed for the women at this point in time. It's enough being able to come to a group and play something, first of all, secondly with other people, three, to make some music that just takes their minds off things 
immediately because being able to relax and being able to have some time to look after yourself is a privilege mm -hmm. which um, a lot of the time um, isn't available for these women because they have too many other things to worry about. A lot of the women are pregnant, a lot of the women have uh, housing that's a little bit precarious and maybe isn't very long term. Um, a lot of women are struggling, these women are struggling for money, um, there might be there might be domestic issues, there might be issues with partners, there might be issues with other relationships they might have had, you know. Mm -hmm. So there are lots and lots of stresses for these women a lot of the time. And so to come and just take time out and play music, even getting in the room, it's a bit like, why would I do that? Like, why would I take time for myself? Mm -hmm. That's the feedback we've been getting a lot of the time. So to have people here and be able to play something that feels quite beautiful a lot of the time, just being able to pick up and play something, when previously that hasn't been available to you, so you don't know if you can do it or not, it's quite a big and slightly scary thing. And so we can succeed in that, and we can survive it as a group. We can we can create something together, so we can create something new. And a lot of the time, it's pleasurable in a way that's very uncomplicated. Sometimes, from what I've been told by the group participants, that's about enough because actually life could just have pleasurable moments. One woman was telling me that it's given her, it was it gave her some time because she's uh, pregnant, this woman that I'm thinking of. And so we just sang to her baby and it gave her some time to just be with her baby and to prepare in one way for what it would be like just being with her and her baby as a mother for the first time. Curious, at the end of the group, would people start talking at one point or would is it still being just kept out of it in a way? It depends on each woman. Some of the women wanted to talk about their experiences a little bit. Um, a lot of the women didn't. But that's probably as much about it being in a new situation as well as it being uh, difficult to talk about in front of a group, even with people you trust and that you know. Um, so I, I don't, I don't tend to worry about that too much, to be honest. It's enough. It's enough that they're here and that there's a group. I just think it's amazing and incredible. Like when the more I hear like about these sort of music therapy groups, the, the talking part in traditional therapy doesn't have to be just the actual space and the ability to find joy can in itself and of itself be a healing element for someone going through trauma. Mm. The reason I think it's so important just to kind of reiterate that is because I think when people are talking about therapy, um, I find it, and I don't know if you find it with your clients, when people always want to know what the point is, and they go, well, what, what's the point, what's the goal? And if they're thinking about therapy in the NHS or, or something, it's like there has to be some um, tangible outcome, and, and like the therapist has to like prescribe mm -hmm. you know, goals and techniques, and that therapy can be so much more than that and when it comes to difficult complex emotions all of this is is part of that healing that there's just trying to get across in the podcast that therapy is something that is quite subjective but there's something about being in the room in the moment when you're feeling the the power of it mm. that can't be explained sometimes when you're just explaining it well I absolutely agree with everything you're saying, I really hear it and I think there's another aspect to it as well that um, the reason that this stuff isn't quantifiable and that it doesn't fit into a neat box is because in order to 
be able to explain to somebody that just being here for this group of women is, is an achievement in itself would mean that the person that I'm explaining this to would have to get in touch with the idea of how difficult life is for these women in order for them to be available enough to just turn up to a session. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's not what a lot of people want to do. It's easier to kind of say, okay, you've got a definable set of conditions that fit into this kind of thing, so we can prescribe you this thing, and you'll be able to feel better in these kind of tick boxy kind of ways, which is not representative of the majority of people that need help, mm-hmm. but is a result of, I think, a defence that's present in an overstretched service or set of services such as the NHS where they just haven't got the time and the headspace to be able to think about stuff in a nuanced and complex way, which actually is what a lot of people need. During analysis now, is it a, a recent thing? I've been in psychotherapy since I've been in London, okay. um, but I've only been in analysis for just over a year. Um, so that's a very new experience for me, which I'm still kind of getting to grips with. But at the moment, it's really helping me be a really uh, useful, well, as best I can, be a useful therapist to the patients I have. I've always assumed that analysis is something that either is on its way out or that very few people do it. And I don't know whether I'm actually misinformed in that, so you, you might know more. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I don't know... Um, what the take-up for analysis is. I know that I go to the Institute of Psychoanalysis for my sessions and I know that they are, um, I think they have waiting lists. Because it is, it does feel like a very rare and precious thing. And it's expensive. And it's also, uh, it's time hungry as well as money hungry. I have to, I have to uh, sort my days around my appointments. Um, So I do a lot of my admin when I'm travelling to and from sessions. But um, it feels, uh, the way I kind of justify it in my mind is that it feels like going to the gym. It feels like having a personal trainer. Um, because it keeps me in a way where I'm usually able to think with more perspective more often than I'm not. Which was not the case when I wasn't having therapy. Um, and analysis uh, is a different beast into itself. <laughs> Because anal- because you think you're doing root and branch in psychotherapy, and then you go to analysis, and all of the other layers are peeled back. Because even when you're having therapy once a week, that's one hour out of a 24-hour day, out of a 24 times 7-hour week. So you have to cram a lot into, into 50 minutes, into a therapeutic hour, in a way that you can avoid much less in analysis. There's nowhere to hide. <laughs> That's the pro and the con. Because analysis is very strict in that it always comes back to the relationship in the room. Regardless of whether I'm talking about that consciously or not. It's always reflected back to me in terms of how it affects our relationship in the room. Because I think then if I can have it illuminated in this way, in this safe space, in this extremely boundaried, hyper-clean space, um, then... I will be able to kind of think about it in the more messy environments outside of the room. I think that's the idea of it, but I, maybe my analyst would say something different, I don't know. And just having very strict boundaries and very strict parameters, I think this, uh, I think this appeals to the part of me that really enjoyed the discipline of being in this school choir. I think it's the same thing. I absolutely know if I'm 10 seconds late, then he will not wait for me. Yeah, I have to to go into the room and and I'm late and we'll be talking about it. Okay. 
and it always finishes on the dot at 10 to. I must say, though, that I don't clock watch because um, if I knew for certain that it finished and it was that obsessive, I'd worry about it. So I just I don't know exactly, exactly what time it finishes. But I do know that when I come out of most sessions, I look at my phone and it's like 10.50 or 10.51. So... Um, it's very accurate. Yeah. When you say he doesn't wait for you, so as in he'll be in the room waiting for you to come in, and if you're not there, he'll move. He'll just go back into the room. Right. Okay. Because I'm in the waiting room, and uh, all of the clinical rooms are behind a door. Okay. So he opens the door, sticks his head out. If I'm there, I come through. If I'm not there, then he just waits in the in the room, mm-hmm. and then I have to and then I have to go through the door on my own. The door of shame. Yeah. <laughs> it feels a bit like that to me. <laughs> A lot of people who will be listening might not have had therapy. What I realise is a lot of people don't understand different modalities or understand what they even mean. Mm-hmm. And when you say you're a psychotherapist or a counsellor, people think you're a psychoanalyst and mm-hmm. they're saying, don't psychoanalyse things. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to get across to people what the differences are between mm-hmm. psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, psychotherapy and counselling and all the different modalities between them. Mm. <laughs> so I wonder whether we can maybe talk about that a little bit now, like the differences that you've described between psychoanalysis and the psychodynamic psychotherapy that you did before. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they all use the same kind of theoretical approach. If it's psychoanalysis or psychodynamic psychotherapy, it's all based on Freud and people that came after Freud. And a lot of the therapy that I've had uh, is um, based on the theories of Melanie Klein, who came after Freud, but created a bit of a schism in the way that things were done. I think I'm probably, I probably follow Klein and all the object relations theories that came after that. I like to treat a lot of uh, these theories as philosophy rather than as art or science necessarily because um, that's the way I see it it's it's uh, it's a way of helping us uh, create a view on the world which would then inform all the decisions we make and would inform all the interventions that we that we do so I like to think of it in that sense Um, and when I studied a bit of philosophy, this was like when I was at school though, but it really left an impression on me, this idea that um, you can set out a theory and then it can be critiqued, mm-hmm. and then a new theory can be set out as a result, and then that can be critiqued, and so on and so on and so on. So you refine and refine and refine and refine. And maybe, um, uh, but that's not to imply that you're working towards something in particular, it's just that something has been set out, and so then that's just being thought about in a kind of myriad set of ways and then another thing is set out and if if the philosopher is any good they're not setting it out as this is what is happening yeah, yeah. it's it's uh it's an idea of what the the best guess they have of what's going on which yeah. is how i read freud and klein yeah and people that have come after klein um that's the most useful way i can think of of kind of seeing it but how it was explained to me at the tavistock is this if you go for therapy once a week, you're having psychodynamic psychotherapy. If you go twice or three times a week, you're having psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And if you go four or five times a week, you're having psychoanalysis. And certainly I felt a big difference between three and four, especially because I have four back to back. I don't have it, I go Tuesday to Friday. And so that, the frequency and the closeness of sessions has 
seen the biggest difference for me because I worked up to it gradually. I went once a week, then I went twice, then three times. But even with the three times, there was a gap in the week. So it was like I went twice and then once. And then the fourth session kind of filled in the gap. It's not just to do with how the theory is applied because in psychoanalysis, the analyst can take a bit more time just to sit back and let the patient work things out for themselves. So a lot of the time the analyst is silent. That's the stereotype of it anyway. I think I would say that I find that quite respectful because it does let me get on with it in a way that it's, it's always the case in any therapy that you have that your therapist can talk until they're blue in the face, but it doesn't matter. Until you've experienced it yourself, that's the point it kicks in. And in analysis, there's just a bit more space for me to be able to do that. Sometimes I really can't bear it and sometimes I really want him to speak. But other times, it's fine that he doesn't speak and lets me do the thinking myself. Because I know he's there and I know he's listening, for the most part. So it's, so it's okay. Um, when therapy's less frequent, they'll probably still be thinking about it in the same way. They'll still be thinking about um, the transference relationships and the experience of being together with someone in the room and how that feels. And they're probably uh, making interpretations and it's a lot of symbolic kind of thought and representation, but maybe a psychodynamic psychotherapist might be slightly more directive, because there's just a bit less time to do things, and because it requires the patient actually to do more thinking outside of the sessions, whether they are aware of that or not. Um, and so sometimes an interpretation might come a little bit more quickly, and I think maybe, I mean certainly in music therapy, I, I couldn't say for certain for just straight psychotherapy, uh, music therapy is often fixed term. And so if you want to get to a particular point and you think your patient can manage it, maybe you'd say something slightly more quickly in a less frequent therapy than you would in analysis, just because um, there's, only, there's only so much time. And you're on a couch in psychoanalysis, you're lying back. Yes. Is that the same for the, for the less frequent? In my case it was, but it's, but it's not always the same for everybody. There are uh, plenty of colleagues I know that have only ever sat in the chair because okay. uh, not all of my colleagues have analysis it was never a requirement for me to have analysis um, and so some people actually found the couch a little bit too intimidating which is fair enough you know you can't the therapist is well your analyst is sat behind you so it's you're talking to a disembodied voice there's another weird parallel because when I was a kid I went to confession and sometimes the priest was in a grill and I could see his face and at other times the priest was behind the curtain and I preferred it when the priest was behind the curtain because it was mysterious and it was a bit transgressive and it really put me on edge in a way that was kind of, in a way that was kind of fascinating yeah. to observe. That's such a fascinating connection because that was the kind of traditional therapy, wasn't it? People going to church and confessing mm. and the role of the therapist moving on from that interaction confession in itself. Mm. But I think that link is there's something in it, there's something about confiding to someone who's totally confidential with you, who you cannot see, but who hears you. Mm. There's, there's a connection. I think the big difference for me is, and this is something that I'm really still getting to grips with and that I have a lot of difficulty with, a priest is a messenger from God. That's their role and that's the way in which they take the role, which has an implication with it that a priest would have answers. 
and that if you're praying to a god also there would be an implication that while the god is performing the same function as the analyst that he's there and he's listening because it's always a he if you're a catholic um, there might be some kind of divine answer that you would expect from that deity with your analyst as much as I want him to give me answers all the time, he never bloody does. He just he just reflects stuff back to me, yeah. and he just he just shows me how I'm how I am in this moment. Yeah. And he's a human, and he turned up late once, and I couldn't bear it. And um, it's all it's all difficult, and I have to expect that because he's human, he'll make mistakes in a way that I can't in a way that a priest isn't even expected to make mistakes and we all know about the fallacy of priests and we all know about all the awful stuff that's happened within those confines but I wonder if that's because of this kind of deification of these human beings who could never ever live up to this role that we've assigned to them whereas an analyst as much as I want him to act like a god is not able to do that and that, for me, is the big difference and the thing that one of the things that I find the most difficult. So I think that's the other thing about analysis, which I can't say for certain was just analysis because I had so much psychotherapy before that. Um, but it seems to be an analysis that it's really brought home how much my early experiences have really formed who I am in a way that we know theoretically when we read the books. But I think that's the thing with analysis. I'm experiencing what I'm reading so much more now. And I'm doing that in analysis, I think because of the frequency, more than I've done in any other therapy. And also, as much as I hate to admit it, I think he's probably quite good at thinking what he's doing. <laughs> so I think that's got something to do with it as well. The therapy, um, the therapy came later because I became anxious and because I needed some support. Excuse me. Um... And um, it was it, the therapy was in line with the training, and I think a lot of people go into training because it's difficult for them to be a patient. Um, and I, I probably still struggle with that, to be honest. Um, I'm more used to being a patient now, but I still don't really enjoy it. But it was a more acceptable way for me of, of getting my own therapy that way, and it meant that I was able to feel better and in a way that um, made sense to me in my own mind and was a different dogma and a different ideology maybe. So I've got this job as a cantor at a Catholic church in North London which is interesting in itself because I was brought up Catholic but I don't believe any of it anymore, I'm a lapsed Catholic so the idea of being paid to go back to church felt a bit odd but I took it at the time because I needed the money and I've been there a year now, and as the year's gone on, it's very apparent, you know, I know the choreography, I know, I know when all the little mass parts need to be sung. I've got no issue doing it, it's just, I feel a bit conflicted, I try to zone out during the homilies. So it's been, it's just been an interesting job to do anyway, but, you know, on the flip side of all of this, it's a really, really lovely community, and they're extremely friendly, and... For the most part, they're quite open-minded. Um, I think with the parishioners, I try not to talk about anything particularly serious too much. Mm. And also, it's uh, so it's me as the cantor, and then there's an organist who's Italian. Um, we know each other because we did a panto together years and years ago through a mutual friend, and we've just played on a few gigs together since. Um, 
And so he booked me to come and sing some funerals at the church because they just needed a singer at short notice and I know all the hymns. So I just went, yeah, that's fine, I can do that. Um, and so I came and I came a few times and it worked out quite well and uh, we got chatting and he said, oh, right, so you're Catholic and you were... I said, well, I was brought up Catholic. And he went, yeah, okay, because uh, he's, he's the same. So okay. he was brought up Catholic, but he doesn't really believe it. It's a job for him as well. But he said, well, me and the priests have been talking and we do think we need a cantor. Would you be free on Sunday mornings? And I needed the money. So I said, yes. I had to have an interview with the priest. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's, uh, I, I didn't really know what the parameters of the job what was going to be at that point. I just thought it would be just turn up and sing on Sundays. And he said, yes, and you're going to run the children's choir as well. And I said, am I? And he says, <laughs> And he said, uh, absolutely, and we're going to start with the children who are about seven or eight who are making their first communion, and um, you're going to go into the school and rehearse them, and it's going to have the explicit purpose and function of getting them, getting them to attend Mass more regularly because we're going to have them singing hymns mm-hmm. at the front of church. So not only am I um, encouraging the congregation to sing hymns with words that I'm just not really focusing on, I'm also um, rehearsing a group of children... <laughs> To come to Mass and, again, (laughs) sing words that I don't necessarily uh, agree with or focus on. (laughs) Um, I think the good thing about being a church musician is that actually you need to improvise quite a lot. It's quite comparable with music therapy in that regard, in that how many verses are we going to sing? Well, it depends entirely on how quickly the priest gets up to the altar and how quickly he wants to get on with saying his prayers. What happens if we run out of music and there's still an offertory procession going on? Well, we just have to busk something from either end of the church because the org- the church I'm in is not a small church. It's like a small cathedral size. Yeah. And the organist is at one end and I'm at the other because I'm singing from the altar. There is a 0.7 second delay between what's played on the organ and what gets to the oh, front of the church. Okay. So we have to navigate that as well. Um, when I'm with the children and they're coming to sing at the front one of them might start crying or one of them might forget the words and the priest often likes it if they do actions so we, so the kids make up actions as well <laughs> this whole thing is really bizarre I'm just saying it out loud <laughs> it just sounds a bit strange so you really have to think on your feet all the time sometimes the readers just mess up and a little part of the reading isn't said so I'm the nearest person, so the priest often just looks at me and is like, well, you do it, and it's like, okay, fine, and then the book is upside down. Or um, So you just you have to be constantly alert all the time. It's a real kind of leadership position, really, because my job is to encourage the congregation to sing, but they're looking at me as a leader at the front um, in order to help them do that. And um, I wonder if that's maybe a thing with this type of religion in that it's quite... Um, you know, they look to they look to people at the top for guidance and support and advice and stuff, but it, it does rather have the effect of being treated a bit like a magician. Okay. You know. Do you feel like a magician? <laughs> well, I'm I'm regularly told that I've got this very special talent and uh, you know, what would what would they do without me and how would they manage? And the answer is that they cope perfectly fine. They cope for years without a cantor. And it's not even a question of coping. They, they, wanted to, they wanted to turn up to church. If they wanted to sing, they would. If they didn't, that's fine. You know, having a cantor is a nice luxury. It's not a necessity in that setting, like it is maybe if you're in a synagogue or something like that, where a lot of it is reliant on singing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, it's an interesting job. 
but it's improved my musicianship no end because sometimes the organist doesn't decide the hymns until five minutes before mass starts. So he goes, there's the hymn numbers. And I go, okay, well, I don't know three of these. So I just have to sight sing them. But it's, it's pretty cool that I feel confident enough now that I can just pick up a book and look at the music and go, fine, and off we go. Well, I haven't really talked about the concert, so I ended up getting sidetracked and talking about that instead. Right, nice. Well, the concert is partly because of uh, our organist being Italian, and I'm not just English, I'm also Lebanese, and, um, but I'm rediscovering my dad's side of the family, and I'm, re I'm finding out a lot more about myself as a result. So it was kind of interesting that I've got this opportunity to do something with Lebanese culture. So we have an Italian carol, we have a Lebanese carol, in this concert that we're doing. We have a load of English ones, but also um, just stuff that we've picked up along the way. So there's a Swedish carol that my friend sent me. The centerpiece of the whole concert is an Argentinian uh, suite of Christmas songs called Navidad Nuestra. And it's very much in that style. So we have an accordion and guitars and percussionists and stuff, which is a million miles away from the very traditional King's College Christmas organ that you get in the choir and stuff. Although we do have a choir for this, it's just that we're going to be singing in Spanish as best we can. Um, but in a weird, serendipitous coincidence, I recently met a conductor who's Argentinian, who knows Navidad Nuestra really well, and she's free on the date of the concert, so she's going to come and conduct us. Oh, yeah, and that it's an interesting piece because it's, it's very like uh, the church stuff in that it's kind of folky. She said, you know, we've got sheet music for it, but she said, well, it's kind of approximate. You know, we do, we'll work it out on the day. The percussion's kind of ad-lib. The singing doesn't have to be absolutely exact. We'll just kind of, so long as we're all kind of playing in basically the same direction, it will be fine. But that means again, that we'll be focused on her and we'll be taking direction from her and it can really be her vision and our understanding of what she's trying to communicate to us. So it becomes a more unique performance in its own right. I get really into folk music and all the songs that have been collected, especially around England, in the, I think it's the 19th century, something like that, like Cecil Sharp and Ralph Vaughan Williams would literally travel around the country and just collect folk songs. And I think it's really interesting. It's like accents and dialects and stuff, the way things are kind of passed around and the way words are misremembered or lines are said in a different order and, Things are done at different speeds or in different keys and it tells you something about where you're from and it tells you about um, the sorts of things that are important to you and your community at that time. I think it's really fascinating and it's kind of something that I carry over into music therapy because the way I see it, everything that gets played in the session is communication and it's a bit like folk music in that you're being told something about somebody right there and then. And where they are right now, it's a very immediate kind of passing on of a part of someone's self. It's really interesting. You've just been listening to my interview with Marianne Rizkala, a music therapist, tutor at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and Vice Chair of British Association for Music Therapy. In part
part two of this episode. I'll catch up with Marianne again after the carol concert she did before Christmas and we'll speak about her work as the director of North London Music Therapy which is split between two sites in Harrow Arts Centre and Jackson's Lane Theatre Space. I then visit her home where she teaches singing and where I discover that she toured with Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds as a choir member of the Crouch End Festival Chorus, which pleased me no end. I'll see you over there.